Open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of this blessed book that we find in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3. We're only going to be dealing with verse number 6 today, having already treated verses 1 through 5, but to help us just kind of set the context of where we're at today and to focus our minds on the real thrust coming into verse number 6, we're going to read and look at together verses 1 through 6 as part of our introduction. Open up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house, or that is, all God's house. Verse 3, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every man is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house, that is God's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. And here's our verse today, verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? And may the Lord bless the reading, the hearing and understanding of his holy word. As part of my introduction, I would uh, presume that many of you are familiar with, or at least somewhat familiar with, an old book written by a Puritan, John Bunyan. The book's entitled The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is really a parallelism to the Christian's own life, as the main character, whose name is Christian, seeks to flee the city of destruction and reach the celestial city where he will find eternal rest and peace. Well, along his way, John Bunyan, the author, introduces a number of characters in the book that will either hinder Christian's journey to meet his desired destination or will help him. And one of the characters that were in the book that tremendously helped him was the one named Evangelist. It was Evangelist, you may recall, that helped Christian take the first step toward what was called the wicked gate, the door, the opening that would lead him on a path, a straight and narrow path to a place that would free him of his condemning burden, a condemning weight of sin that he was carrying. It was also the evangelist who helped Christian when he was going to be overcome by the weight and the destruction and the rigors of the law that the evangelist after exhorting him of why he got off the straight and narrow path, told him, get back on the straight and narrow path. And the evangelist is an important figure because all throughout the narrative, he helped this journeying Christian on his way, seeking the celestial city. He helped him from falling into the ditch of presumption and also into the ditch of despair. And this, of course, is very close to our own experience, is it not, as Christians? We can at times uh, be tempted to allow things to grow and fester in our lives that would borderline lasciviousness. 
That is, uh, taking the precious gift of grace in our lives and presuming that, you know what, now that we're justified and saved, we can just act, think, and live any old way we want. And that, of course, is a horrible ditch to fall into. But then there's also the ditch of despair to think that, uh, you know, that we will reach the celestial city by our own efforts and our own works. That, of course, is just as a dreadful place to be. I open up that thought of bringing our attention to the pilgrim's progress and those two ditches of presumption and despair which the evangelist in the story was so instrumental of helping Christian get through because I really believe that that's what's going on here in the book of Hebrews to a large degree. We have in chapter 3 been so encouraged that our eternal hope, our eternal security, it rests solely on the eternal plan of God, Hebrews 2, verse 10. And not only that, but it rests solely on the efficacious work of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you recall, He was the one, the only one, that was pure, holy, and spotless, that whose sacrifice of his own life being created in the nature of Abraham, that is a man, he would pay a propitiation, or that is, he would reconcile us back unto a holy God and creator. That's chapter 2, verses 10, all the way through 18. And now we come into chapter 3. And the writer offers up what would be a legitimate sobering exhortation to those whose eyes have been opened to the glorious realities of what he just portrayed in chapter 2, who are in some way or another being tempted of going back to some form of the old covenant way of belief and practice to exhort them that to do so would be disastrous. He wants to show them that being part of Christ's house here in verse 6 today of Hebrews 3 demands, indeed, it requires by the builder of the house, that is Christ, that we as its members, that we take responsibility within our own lives to persevere in the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, which we will look at in a moment, firm unto the end. And so we're going to focus today under two headings, verse number six, which is, as you see in your sermon notes, Christ requires that we persevere in his house and also Christ ensures that we will be preserved in his house. Our perseverance will be considered first of all and then Christ's preservation will be considered secondly. Let us then consider under our first heading that Christ requires we persevere in His house. Having established that Christ is more worthy of glory than Moses, the preacher now applies this revealed truth in the latter part here in verse number 6, and then he will go on to flesh out its application throughout the remainder of the chapter. Now what is immediately worthy of our attention today in verse number 6 is two things. First, there is this indicative statement. This indicative statement that we are Christ's house. And then there's a qualifying statement. That is, we are Christ's house if. 
we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now these two things are essential, beloved, for us to begin our consideration related to the topic of our first heading that Christ requires us to persevere in His house. These two things we have to flesh out in our minds. The first is that the text says we are members of Christ's house only by the qualified statement if we hold fast firm unto the end. Let us first acknowledge that in this statement, the inspired writer to Hebrews, he is stating a truth of those that he has already previously identified as those who will inherit salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14. He's identified them as many sons who will be brought into glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. He's described them as his own brethren. He's described them, notice in chapter 2, verse 13, as Christ's children. And so we correctly gather from this that what he is stating here in verse 6 about those who are in Christ's house is that in so much as one has come to believe upon the gospel that was first preached by Jesus and then subsequently by the disciples of Jesus, that that person, like Moses, who we read just now in our text, is a servant in God's house, was part of God's house, we have been brought into and are legitimately considered as members of God's household, which we know from 1 Timothy chapter 3 is not only the church of the living God, but also the pillar and the ground of truth. In other words, those being described here with this indicative statement in verse 6, as Christ's house are the very uh, true Israel of the Apostle Paul that is described in Romans 9. It is the possession of Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.23. Those who have been purchased by His blood. He says in verse 6, these are the house of Christ. This house of Christ, considered in the old covenant era, oftentimes was referred to and known as the remnant. That is, those who by faith had circumcised hearts and were always, remember, the minority amongst the Israelites. But here in the new covenant time era, where we find ourselves reading today, they were identified initially as the Nazarenes but would later be identified as Christians. Or that is in the Greek, Christianos, simply meaning the followers of Christ. This is in verse 6 who he is talking about. Followers of Christ. Now, while there are some in our day who would extend this title of Christianos to all people, who have just merely received an outward baptism, regardless or separate of a credible profession of faith, or who would apply this term Christian to all those who, you see, I, I put it in brackets in your sermon notes, who made a decision of some other for Jesus at some sort of evangelistic meeting. Scripture speaks only of Christians 
as those, borrowing now here the language from the canons of Dort, who God effectually calls. That's chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews today. Who God effectually calls. Christians are those according to God's purpose have been called to the communion of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerated by the sovereign power of His Holy Spirit. That's all contained in verse 1 of chapter 3, which we've already dealt with. That is who's being talked about in verse number 6 in that indicative way. Now, isn't it interesting that everything that I just outlined of what biblically identifies a true blood-bought follower of Jesus is exactly how this inspired writer has been identifying this original audience? He, in other words, sincerely views them as being holy brethren and those who, as verse 1 says today in chapter 3, have partaken of the heavenly calling. It is to Christians that he gives the following qualifying admonition, not fakes, not those who are a Christian today and next week they're not and then they come back again another week and then not. No, no, no. He is giving the qualifying admonition, which we're about to consider, to those who he sincerely believes have received an effectual calling, has demonstrated in their lives, they have picked up a cross and are following Jesus. And furthermore, I would add, to be a Christian in this first century demanded much sacrifice, much humiliation, much um, Osternation from family and friends and society. He's writing, he's giving this admonition to the house of Christ. That's clear in verse number one. So now then, having considered that he is truly writing to those who could raise their hand and say, I have truly laid down all my life and I'm following Jesus Christ to the best of my sanctified ability. He gives the qualifying conditional admonition. Look at your Bibles in verse number 6. Here it is. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Holding fast. Holding fast. This is what we are called to as the house of Christ. The original audience as well as us today are confronted now after being recipients of this beautiful gospel that was presented in chapter 2, with a very sobering truth here, that as the true members of Christ's house, we are and we will be distinguished by our perseverance in the confidence of the faith and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now to help us understand the sobriety of this admonition, let's consider or let's fully recognize the full meaning of this phrase that's been translated in the English. It's retained by most all translations. Hold fast. Hold fast. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. Kati uh, echo is the Greek word. And you see there that its definition help us to ascertain a little bit of what's being called of us in this sober duty of being members of Christ's house. We are to hold and keep from going away, it says. Additionally, it's to hold fast, keep secure, keep firm possession of. And notice the last part of the definition that this word, this concept carries with it. 
To check a ship's headway. That is, to to keep an eye on the direction that a ship is sailing. To hold it and to steer the ship. The admonishment that's being conveyed is rather straightforward and clear, isn't it, brethren? Where there is no diligent effort on our part to persevere, to hold fast in one's profession of the faith, when there is no attention to the steering of the direction of our ship of the faith, there ought not to be a presumptuous guarantee in our minds of ever reaching the desired rest and destination on the other side. That is the clear and straightforward admonition. But as you see in your notes, the writer stresses this same thought later on in the same chapter, verse number 14. He says again, he says, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, prior to moving forward, we should pause for a second and ask, is there anything else in the text that might help us to know that we're on the right track as to understanding its very sober admonition? Well, there is. And it lies in the little word that's translated into the English, if, if. I want to draw your attention to your sermon notes where you see that we learn from biblical scholars and Greek grammarians that they explain what is so important for us to observe here in this word that in the Greek is aeon. Aeon is being employed by the inspired writer in what is called the subjunctive mood. And that's simply a mood that expresses a desire that has a, a wee bit of element of uncertainty. It's 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 an expression of a wish or a desire, thus connected to it is an element of uncertainty. Whereas he could have used the word I, which also is translated in the New Testament as the English word if, or sometimes since, which has an indicative mood that presumes a reality of a premise, a reality of, of something that's assumed. In other words, the writer could have very easily to be very clear of how we understand what is being implied here in verse number six. He could have written verse six this way. Christ, whose house we are, since, you see, he could use the word, the Greek word, I, since we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. But he doesn't do that. But he doesn't do that. Now, beloved, remember in our introduction to the book of Hebrews a little over a couple months ago, we noted that how New Testament theologians observed that the, the rich use of the Hebrew language here and the grammar used here indicated that the inspired writer had a very unique uh, ability, a very unique enhanced ability and familiarity with the Greek language. And so I only point that out because what he does and what word he uses, aeon here, translated if with the element of uncertainty, along with verse number 14, in the same chapter, conveying the same concept and the same idea, gives us reassurance that we are understanding the conditional particle here in verse number 6. 
of stressing the importance of our perseverance if we hope to reach the eternal shore. What we mustn't ignore is that by employing this conditional particle in this subjective mood, along with Psalms 95 verses 7 through 11, and the retelling of Israel's wilderness experience, our inspired writer, including himself, along with his readers, by the word, the continual use of the word we, he clearly insists that being a true member of Christ's house and partaking of Christ is conditioned upon our perseverance. Now, let's be very clear. He's not stressing the conditionality of ours being in Christ town upon our perfectness. He's not stressing it upon our perfect or perfected holiness. But he is saying it is based upon our perseverance. And so then in light of the phrase, hold fast. And this particle translated as if we know Beloved, that we are on the right track in handling the exact meaning of what's being taught here in verse number 6. Those who do not persevere in the faith to the end, regardless of their profession, regardless of their baptism, regardless of the fact that some evangelists signed the front of their Bibles when they quote-unquote made a decision to follow Jesus, regardless if they claim to possess some supernatural abilities to heal, to speak in some unknown language, or some other supernatural phenomenon, or even if they have a PhD in the most accurate of all biblical theology, if they do not persevere to the end, they will not inherit the promises of the gospel. The necessity of one's perseverance being conveyed here, it really, if you think about it, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's familiar with their Bibles, especially those portions of the New Testament that contain the Lord's parables. For instance, as you have in your notes, consider with me Mark chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Where this concept, this idea is conveyed. There we find the Lord Jesus teaching about the good seed and the bad seed. And he says, these are they by the wayside, beginning in verse 15 in your notes, where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves. And so they endure for but only a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And there the concept is uh, they give up. They don't persevere. Well, additionally, we find elsewhere how the apostles used this same argumentation of the necessity requiring the disciples of Jesus to exhibit personal responsibility by holding fast, by preserving in the, in, in, uh, the faith, in spite of all that their own flesh, the devil in the world, would bring against them. I've given you only one sampling of this sort of 
reasoning that substantiates what we're reading here in verse number six of our text today. And it comes from Romans 11.22, as you see in your notes, where the inspired apostle Paul says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God upon them which fell severity, meaning the hardened, unbelieving Jews, but toward thee, speaking to the church, but toward thee goodness, if, same Greek word, eon, or aeon, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And so we are correctly ascertaining the admonition that's being conveyed here in verse number six. Now, we've clearly understood here, come to a point in our message where we're grasping what it's saying. Now, to avoid some of the implications of this, of what people believe are contradictions in their theology, there have been some very poor mistaken interpretations of what verse 6 is teaching regarding the necessity of our perseverance in the faith. I'm going to give you two examples. These are the two most prominent ones. The first one, as you see in your sermon notes, is the lack of reward concept. Some take this text to mean that there's going to, that the lack of perseverance in the faith or the, the lack of the perseverance on the part of the Christian will simply, but still seriously, result only in a lack of rewards that one will receive when they get to heaven. However, I don't believe that this view does justice to the meaning of the words that we just considered together, nor does it fully appreciate how the psalmist in chapter 95 of the psalm uses the historical account of the rebellious, hardened Israelites in the wilderness to stress the fact that to not to persevere in the promises of God, to not persevere in the confidence of the faith and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, it results in disaster, not just the loss of a few rewards. So the lack of rewards interpretation of the admonishment given here in verse number six just really doesn't hold water in light of what the text means. We just looked at that, how it's used and exegeted in comparison with other parts, portions of scripture. And also in the, in the immediate context of chapter three, how the inspired writer is using Psalms 95, which is referencing Numbers 14 and uh, peril, peril, uh, using parallel the wilderness experience of the Jews. Well, there are some that say, well, this isn't specifically talking to any individual Christian. It's more of a corporate admonishment. It's a corporate admonishment that the corporate church persevere. And this is where others argue that since the writer uses inclusive terms like we, that what's really being taught here is not a warning of one's individual salvation and standing as an inheritor of the promises of God, but rather a corporate admonishment to not lose their way in the approaching wilderness that they're journeying uh, within and that they would just keep going forward as collectively a church so that they wouldn't find themselves meeting the same fate as the Israelite. Well, this view falls short of the fact that this very same writer has no problem later on in chapter 11, you may already be aware of this, of naming individual examples of those who were faithful unto the end. He gives in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the big hall of fame of all of the faithful 
who individually persevered unto the end. So he doesn't have a problem applying this sort of admonition to specific individuals there in chapter 11. Nor does this corporate warning view hold up when we're considering how in the immediate context of our chapter 3 today, the writer in verse 7, verse 12, you see in verse 13, and again in verse 15, he explicitly applies this admonition, this exhortation, to individuals. You see it there with phrases. If ye will hear his voice. If any of you, this is individualistic. And so, with all of that considered, these are mistaken interpretations which help us to know that we are on the right track of rightfully dividing the word of God of what we see here in verse 16, understanding the, uh, the, 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 the severity, uh, the gravity of the, the sobering admonition here that if we are Christ's house, if we do not take the personal responsibility to persevere in the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope unto the end, firm unto the end, then we will not inherit the promises offered to us by Christ. Well, we have come to a place now in our time together in the text that we safely and rightly can conclude that the Lord Jesus Christ most definitely requires all his true disciples to persevere in his house unto the end in order that they may inherit all the promised blessings. Knowing then, beloved, the importance of our preserving, let us now consider what the text teaches us exactly we are to persevere in and how it is that Christ ensures that we will be preserved unto the end. What are we to specifically persevere in and will Christ ensure that we will be preserved in these things unto the end? Well, to begin, let's clearly state what this preserving in the faith, this preserving in Christ's house means. Look at verse 6 because it tells us. It says, if we hold fast, there's the concept of the preservation, Uh, perseverance if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope as you see in your notes here we have two parts two components as if it were that Christ desires that we are to persevere in one is the confidence and second is the rejoicing of the hope so then let's consider the first part of our perseverance, what we're called to persevere in, that is described as the confidence. Now, on the surface, we would think it simply is communicating we exhibit some sort of fearless assertion, some sort of fearless assurance, or total blind confidence in something. Well, to what? Well, to the truth of the gospel and all of its claims about who Jesus is, etc., etc., that was summarized in chapter number 2 toward the end. This would be natural for us to think because we know the recipients of the original audience here, the recipients of this letter, they would have received the same gospel that we would have. And so this is the confidence, right? That they're supposed to be enduring in, preserving in. They would have known the gospel as we received it, as recorded in Romans 10, 9, as you see in your notes, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus 
Thou and believe in thy heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so with this, we see that in the first part of what we are to persevere in is somewhat understood initially as a confidence that we will be saved by the Lord Jesus and by the Lord Jesus alone. And we're to have full assurance in this. We're never to doubt it, never to question it. Well, this is true. That is a correct way of understanding what we're to persevere in here in what's called or described as the confidence. But look at your notes. Look at your notes there. This term that's translated in in the English as the confidence in the Greek, it really carries with it the primary idea and the primary concept of exhibiting freedom in one's speech or being unreserved in one's speech. With this fuller understanding of what lies in the original Greek tongue and the Greek expression being utilized by the writer, it's what leads one New Testament scholar to say, as you have in your notes, the primary and the ordinary meaning of the words translated into English as confidence means the freedom and the boldness of speech as expressive of full conviction and the absence of fear opposed to silence and hesitation as being expressive of doubt and timidity. Open, unhesitating, he continues to say, fearless profession of Christian hope seems here to be what the writer's idea is expressing. Now, beloved, this adds a whole new dimension to our understanding of what specifically you and I in this first part of our persevering are supposed to persevere in. Think for a moment. The writer's audience is a first century Jewish uh, converts who in some way or another are being tempted to go back to the old covenant beliefs and thus reject the claims of Christ and His gospel. The preacher purposefully has introduced Moses into his overall argument and now is proceeding to intertwine Old Covenant Israel's disobedience and all that uh, and all this is and all of it what it has with it it serves perfectly to, to equip them now to answer the objections and the arguments verbally with freedom of speech of their Jewish friends and relatives who were seeking to convince them to give up being this Christianos this follower of Christ and come back to the old ways of Judaism. Well, I'm sure that the arguments of their family and their relatives would have been rather persuasive if you really think about it, because it would have been true that their Jewish neighbors could could indeed freely with their speech boast and be confident in their physical descendancy from Father Abraham. And yes, they could also boast and verbally be confident in their possession, and in some cases, amongst some of them, the keeping of the law given to them by Moses, and still further, how they could boast and be confident in the fact that they still possessed and they still practiced all the ritual sacraments of the old covenant system that was so dear to their identification as Jews and their culture. And what could these poor, newly converted Christianos possibly possess? What could they verbally boast of? 
that could be compared to the external pomp and the glory that their friends and relatives would have possessed. Well, what the writer here is telling them to persevere in and what he's calling us to persevere in is to look our friends and our relatives at times when it's necessary, dead in the eye, and with the boldness and freedom of speech, we're to boast in the fact that we have Christ. We have the proclaimed and the promised Messiah Himself. And in Him, in Christ, we can boast that we are partakers of the long-promised and now-fulfilled new covenant. That's something that the others cannot boast in. That's something others cannot be so confident in. In the face of these sorts of confrontations against the truthful claims of Christ, against His gospel, against His covenant, these first century Christians He is calling them to be as part of this distinguishing mark which will show that they truly are part of Christ's house. They were to be cheerfully courageous They were to be appropriately audacious. They were to be assertive and respectful and speaking the truth with love with all things concerning the gospel. This is what they were supposed to own as their own personal responsibility with the strength and the power that the Spirit gives the liberty with men's tongues to stand in the face of all accusations and persevere faithfully firm unto the end, verbally communicating the truths of Christ, His gospel, and His covenant. That's what they were supposed to persevere in. Well, in face of such a sobering responsibility, let's all admit it can be intimidating at times when we're in family circles or uh, circles with our co-workers when something is suggested or when something's spoken that goes against and contradicts the truths of Scripture, Christ and His Gospel for us to be a little bit timid and be a little bit reserved. We have to ask ourselves then, understanding properly this first part of what we are supposed to persevere in, can or will Christ help us persevere in this necessary task of being considered members in His house? Well, beloved, the answer is yes. And the answer isn't just yes, it's yes and amen. This first task of what it means to persevere in the faith. We have many examples of Christ enabling His weak sheep to maintain a testimony of truth and remain steadfast as lions. We could look at Exodus 4, chapter 4, verses 10-12. through 12. I've given it to your notes for sake of time. I'll skip over it. But it tells of the accounts where Moses, doubting his own ability to verbally boast and communicate in the confidence of the faith when he stood before Pharaoh and and others and God told him that he would be with him and he would give him the words to speak. But what about the New Testament example of Christ preserving activity in the life of those in his house? Well, recall the confidence of the Apostle Paul when he was placed before the rulers of the most powerful empire during his time, the Roman Empire, as recorded in Acts 26. I've given it to you in your notes. There we find in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, 
Then Agrippa, King Agrippa, said unto Paul, Thou now art permitted to speak for yourself. Oh, and we see the picture, don't we, church? Here is Christ's preserving of His saints in harmony with Paul persevering in the confidence. Beautiful biblical example of it. Here we go. Paul stretches forth his hand and he answered for himself, I think myself happy. Notice the word happy. King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. You see it in your notes? The Greek word happy, what it carries with it. It's kind of an interesting word in our translation. You see Paul standing in front of Agrippa, King Agrippa, and he says, I think myself happy. The word carries with it someone who has the, the, the attitude, someone who has fostered within their heart this attitude of being supremely blessed, being supremely fortunate, being almost congratulated. Well, where did that come from, beloved? That come from the Spirit of Christ Himself. Here as Paul, a saved and converted man, seeking to be faithful as a member of the house of God, standing in the face of all of the enemies of God, verbally wishing to persevere firm into the end, is met by the blessed Spirit of Christ to help preserve Paul unto the end. This example that includes Paul causes us to remember how that it was Paul oftentimes is described in the New Testament as rejoicing even when he was in shackles and change. And this then leads us now to consider the second part of what we're called as members of Christ's house to persevere in, and that is the rejoicing of the hope. The rejoicing of the hope. Acts 16 records how when in Philippi, Paul and Barnabas, after being beaten with many stripes on their backs, they were cast into the inner part of the prison and their feet were placed in cold, inflexible shackles. And then we find in Acts 16, verse 25, where it records that at the strike of midnight, the other prisoners heard these persevering saints, these persevering Christianos, these followers of Christ. What were they doing? They were praying and they were singing unto God. Amen. Now let me ask you this question, children. Let me ask you this question, beloved. In light of our text of verse number 6 in Hebrews today, what in the world do you believe would have enabled men who were made up of flesh and blood like you and I? Flesh and blood that gets tired, it gets grouchy, at times it gets down in the dumps, it grows increasingly impatient when things don't go its way, The flesh and blood that we also are comprised of that loathes any sort of inconvenience, avoids any sign of discomfort or extreme exertion when it's required of us. What in the world would enable such men to rejoice in the hope, to rejoice in praying and singing unto God with vocal confidence? Well, we know, of course, don't we? It was the preserving activity of Jesus Christ which enabled them to worship Him and sing of the hope that upon conversion was implanted deep in their souls. 
They rejoice in the hope that while their bodies, yes, may be killed, their souls would be eternally with Jesus. Rejoice that Christ's Spirit had indeed changed them from spiritually lifeless and dry bones into men whose lives bore fruits of grace and mercy, all to the glory of God. These early Christians were being called, yes, to persevere in the continual, sincere rejoicing of the hope that was held forth in Jesus Christ. And we see that it was the Spirit of Christ that indeed ensured they would be preserved. It's no wonder we are not surprised to find this same line of thinking elsewhere in Scripture, this admonition to rejoice evermore. As you see in your notes, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18, the admonition once more, Rejoice evermore! Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Okay. Now that we understand that as his residence of Christ's house, he not only requires bold and confident verbal proclamation of his true person and his true gospel, but he also, doesn't he, requires of us rejoicing of or rejoicing in the hope of those truths. And so let me ask you again, in light of this, can or will Christ help us persevere in this important task of being members of his house? Well, he will. This is not only what Jesus promised all throughout his earthly ministry, but also what he provided. As we see in your sermon notes from John 15, 26, when the comforter has come, Jesus promised, I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father. He, the spirit, shall testify of me. You see, he will ensure that we will be given this ability from the spirit to boldly rejoice and to proclaim and to testify of him. Notice, Matthew 28, 18-20, in the context of the giving of the Great Commission. Jesus' own words, He said, All power is given unto Me in the earth and in heaven. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, here it is, church, for our purposes today, I am with you always. How long? It says it in your Bibles. Even until the end of the world. Amen. And so will Christ enable us to persevere the rejoicing of this hope? The answer is yes and amen. Well, we've come to now the time where we have to consider some closing thoughts and seek to make application. It is in this passage today, Hebrews 3, 6, as well as other warning passages that are sprinkled throughout this sermon from the inspired writer of Hebrews, that people often make the mistake of placing the sovereignty of God against the clear and straightforward responsibilities of man who has been converted through the gospel. But beloved, I hope that you see 
That there is no need to make such errors when we simply allow the text to mean what it says, which I believe we've been faithfully accomplishing today in our consideration of it. Those of us who embrace the biblical truth that the believer's eternal security rests solely in Christ's righteousness and Christ's reconciliation of our sins, as described in chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, and furthermore, that the eternal preserving activity and power of God during our Christian pilgrimage will be guaranteed, we should not view the biblical doctrine of our personal responsibility to persevere in the confidence of the faith, in rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end, to be in conflict with one another. They're not. To help us uh, to consider this a little deeper, look at your notes from the words of an old uh, preacher and theologian by the name of A.W. Pink. Pink remarks regarding the sovereign work of God and our creaturely responsibility upon conversion this way. He says, quote, God does not deal with us as unaccountable automatons. I had to look that word up. Don't feel bad. Automatons here in the latter part of the um, 18th century here would have been, I'm sorry, the 19th century. He was uh, pink, if I remember right, was alive around the 1940s to 1960s, 1950s, somewhere around there. Pink here, he is referring to the fact that in God dealing with us in his sovereignty, he's not dealing with us as unaccountable automatons or that is pre-programmed computers or a machine. Rather, God deals with us as moral agents. And that's a biblical truth. Let me draw your attention to your notes. In other words, believers are active participants in sanctification. Philippians 2.12. I gave that to you to look up later for your own studies. We as believers are to keep ourselves from sinning. 1 John 5.18. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude 21. The Bible speaks that we as believers are take responsibility with the grace that's been given to us and run with patience the race that's set before us. Hebrews 12.1 This is how, beloved, we as men and women, boys and girls, who have had our eyes opened, been given new hearts and affections for the love of God, His law, and His gospel, that we exercise in our personal lives godly responsibility. But, as we have seen today, inseparable, you can't separate them, they're not in conflict with one another, inseparable from the exercise of the believer's responsibility, the Bible also overwhelmingly speaks of God's precious fatherly sovereignty. God keeps the believers in the faith. God preserves them from straying and ultimately perfects and matures all of us unto the end. As you see in your notes, 1 Peter 1.5, Jude 24. As Christians, the scriptures provide us complete confidence, beloved, 
that God will finish the work of grace that He has started in us. Psalms 138.8, Philippians 1.6, Hebrews 12.2. The Scriptures teach us that as believers, we are by the power of Christ preserved through His intercession on our behalf unto the end. Luke 22.32, John 17.5. And also by the work of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, 1 John 2, 27. You know, I don't typically just rattle off sermons like Scripture references that way, but I'm doing it so that you see that these two truths are held in harmony with one another in the Scriptures themselves, the revealed mind of God. There is no paradox. There is no confusion to be had. As one commentator rightfully observes, we must be careful not to suggest that our persevering faith is in some way ever considered meritorious grounds of why we will enter into heaven. We mustn't never make that mistake. It is by Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. And we really mean the word alone. But, however, we cannot deny That it is the means, it's a means which God has appointed, that is our our persevering in the faith. He's appointed by which entrance into the consummated blessings of the eternal rest through the gospel is made. And so, how can you know if you will persevere? Very simply, but very, very importantly. You continually look outside of yourself to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you do that, you proclaim the confidence of His perfect gospel. And you never stop rejoicing in the hope that His gospel holds forth to you each and every day. Period. That's how you know if you will persevere. And so therefore, for the Christian that is here today, that perhaps you are downcasted, and you see in this and many other passages that we've considered together, that you have been made a new creature in Christ. And as such, His Spirit does, and it can enable you to follow Jesus in the persevering responsibilities that we've laid forth. Lift up your head, Know that the Spirit of Almighty God is with you. He has opened your eyes at the foot of Calvary to the truth of yourself and the truth of His love and mercy as given to you through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Shake off the dust as the evangelist told Christian and Pilgrim's Progress and get back on the straight and the narrow path looking unto Jesus and the promises and the forgiveness that He promises you. However, For the non-believer, you may think that from this message today that to become a Christian is too demanding. It just requires too much of, of a person. All I reply to you is perhaps you haven't truly given due consideration to the demands of unrestrained fleshly passions that you now surrender to at their every beck and call. Perhaps you haven't given full consideration to the demanding requirements of Satan 
And this evil world system that seeks to consume you and your life and your soul and give you absolutely nothing in return. Oh, yes, the Bible does give us requirements as Christians. The Bible does, non-believer, give us true responsibilities as Christians. But you cannot ignore through the life of Paul and the other early Christians that we've observed, some of which today, oh, the blessed spirit doesn't call us to do anything that it will not come to our aid and enable us to do. This reminds me of the great words of Augustine, early church father who wrote, understanding the truth of what we're considering today. He prayed something to the effect of this. I'm paraphrasing. God, demand of us what thou may. Demand of us whatever it is that thou requirest. You are God. You are the creator. But oh God, oh blessed God, in the full understanding of the weakness of our composition as even born again men and women. Oh God, give us, give us, we pray, what it is we need, what it is we need and what will be required in order for us to meet those demands. Let us close today's message, beloved, with these these precious blessed words from our Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 and close with a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Let us pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the ability to gather together today, to gather around your words and through which you speak to us as your people. We thank you that you have preserved it and that you have kept it pure for us, that we can trust it, we can rely upon it, and oh, that how we may be sharpened and sanctified by it. Father, I pray today that at the end of this message, you will help us through the truths we've seen, that we do have a sober responsibility to persevere in the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope as we've exegeted and understood it to mean. I hope, dear Lord, that we see today that Christ has, through his blessed spirit, promised to preserve us uh, firm unto the end. And thereby, Lord, I pray that we will walk away today avoiding the ditch of despair, but also the ditch of presumption. And stay faithfully on the road, the straight and narrow path that leads to the celestial city. It is by your grace, O God, that we accept and we bow the knee to any truth that we see. So we pray that you would send your spirit, that it would grow and mature us where faith is present. And where faith is absent, O God, I pray that you would open up a heart today You would, by your sovereign power, open and pull the scales back from blinded eyes. And may they see someone here today, their great need of the forgiveness of their sins and the rest, the promised eternal rest that resides only in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. 
We bless you, Father, and we thank you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.